Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Sophia Ramos. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with IAH Associate Director Jennifer Ho. In their conversation, Professor Ho discusses a recent op-ed by Jonathan Zimmerman in the Chronicle of Higher Education on the controversy surrounding UNC's Confederate monument known as Silent Sam. She concludes with her hopes for improving the tense atmosphere on campus surrounding the statue. Yeah, so there's this op-ed by the Chronicle that came out yesterday, which is December 17th, and Mm -hmm. it says, he argues, Jonathan Zimmerman argues that the Silent Sam statue should remain because of its... The historic value. The historic value, yes. So how would you as, (laughs) how would you respond to that? I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I, I mean, I think I would immediately respond by saying that this is an argument we can make pretty much about every object that we encounter. Right. There's a historic value. My first reaction is that it seems to not to be missing the point entirely about the way that we fetishize certain objects, let's just say. Mm-hmm. So, sure, of course that statue has a historic context that right. could be valuable in an educational sense. That doesn't mean that that needs to be part of the lands- current landscape of UNC Chapel Hill. If he's a historian, then I think he would understand that history is not static. History is not about the past, but history is actually a living entity also. Like we are living, Mm -hmm. we are always living in a historic moment. So that statue right now cannot be divorced from any conversations about white supremacy. And the idea that you can have that statue on a campus that is grappling with a history of anti-black racism that has never been addressed and that is facing a national climate of white nationalists who have enacted real violence against people in the name of white nationalism. So let's just take the 11 people who were murdered in a synagogue in Pittsburgh. They were murdered in the name of white nationalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that the easy example to bring up would be Charlottesville. But I think what we have to understand is that UNC Chapel Hill doesn't exist in this ivory tower bubble. We are part of our local community. We are part of the state. We are part of the national conversations about what's going on. And what's going on right now is that many of us feel very traumatized by ongoing threats to our very being. So if you are a black student and you are seeing continually stories and images of black people who are being shot and murdered simply because they're black, and then you have neo, neo-Nazis and pro-Confederate people who are coming here and waving a Confederate flag, which is a symbol of anti-black hatred. You know, I, I know there's some people who are going to say like that, that flag is about my heritage. That flag is about my pride in, a Southern, in being Southern. That flag is not about race, right? That the Confederate flag can be a flag for every people, regardless of race. And while that might be a nice sentiment, and while people who say that might actually believe that, yeah. let's, let's give the generous opinion about that, what they're not understanding is that that is a flag that is a battle flag. That is a flag that was flown in the Civil War. The Civil War was a war that was fought to preserve a way of life that enslaved 
black people. Right. So there is no way to understand that flag without that context. Okay, so in this Zimmerman article, he also states what you were saying about like people of color that live in this community, that come to this campus and are traumatized by this statue in one way or another. But he states in there, he says, I understand and respect that many minorities at UNC denounce the History Center, and this was the History Center that was proposed that sure. got rejected by the Board of Governors uh, to house the, the statue after it fell. Um, denounce the History Center, arguing that a racist symbol like Silent Sam has no place anywhere on the campus. But I think they're wrong, and the best way to show respect for them is to explain why. Anything less isn't respect, it's condescension. And so what I find... <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. I, I find that really... And this is the crazy I, thing. I find that really ironic. <laughs> I think his quote is very ironic. I mean, the... the, the, the yeah, and so it's like... It, it it seems a little confounding to me. I mean, this is he's a professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania, but not to say he's infallible. Just because you have a PhD, don't oh, make I you know, smart. I know, I know. And just because uh, you're at an Ivy League institution also doesn't mean you're smarter <laughs> than the other people who have PhDs. But it just seems to ignore, like, despite it, it seems like this kind of antiseptic thought experiment that he's taken on, on like that that's divorced from like real human experience and trauma and even though he tries to like address the other side in like two three sentences he he basically there's this erasure of of a segment of the population's experience and like humanity almost i'd say yeah i feel like that that seems to be coming up more and more again with this this whole situation and i think that's when we get into the broader issue that's at stake. Right. So I guess the first thing I would say is that what tips me off to his particular point of view is the use of the word minority, which is to say those of us who are working in critical race studies don't tend to refer to people of color or indigenous people as minorities. I wouldn't say that it's exactly pejorative to use the word minority, but I would say that it's certainly somebody who, to my mind, isn't in in conversation with actual non-white people and who is not maybe conversant on scholarship related to race in the United States or globally. So let's just begin there. So I I think we're dealing with somebody who believes that he is not being condescending when actually what he is doing is he's being condescending because the whole idea that he's going to talk to us minorities as if there aren't African-American historians, for example, as as just one example who may have produced a large body of scholarship on this very subject. And one thing I've been thinking a lot about is embodied knowledge. So I know that the comfort zone in academia is for us to go intellectual. Yeah. And... That's not necessarily wrong. I think I do the same thing because I think there is this binary between our feelings and our feelings that may be valid but may not be grounded in facts or in objectivity or reasoning. And then there's the intellect. So the intellect would say, like, that's going to trump feelings all the time because the intellect is out of knowledge and it is out of reason and it is out of logic and expertise. So the the issue, however, is what do you do with somebody who has both? Both a sense of embodied knowledge and a knowledge that can only come through bodily experiences mm-hmm. as well as a certain level of expertise. And I believe that I'm one of those people. I'm yeah. somebody who was trained as an Asian American liter- literary scholar 
who um, subsequently became immersed in critical race scholarship and also feminist scholarship and to a certain degree other types of intersectional and by the way, when I use the word intersection, I want to be really clear that I'm talking about overlapping oppressions and not just a multiplicity of identities. Okay. Um, you know, so I've started reading up about, when I was in graduate school, queer theory as one example. Yeah. I live my life as an Asian American woman, and I cannot disaggregate any aspect of my identity. So it's not like I can wake up one morning and say, I'm just going to approach the world as a woman and have people experience me as a woman divorced from any racial or ethnic identity I have, or my able-bodiedness. Yeah. I can't decide that I want people to ignore my able-bodiedness, because that's also something I take for granted as mm-hmm. somebody with the privilege of being able-bodied. Correct. I live my life with this embodied knowledge at the same time that I have this other area of expertise around race and Asian American literary studies, cultural studies. Both of those knowledges should be valued. Mm -hmm. Um, At different times, I may rely on one more than the other in a classroom situation, but both of them have value. And so what this scholar seems to ignore is the way that we rely on embodied knowledge. So any... Anyone who's doing oral history, anyone who's done IRB approval to interview people about their lived experience are relying on embodied knowledges. Just the fact that you've done IRB and you've interviewed these people and then you write about it in a journal article or a book doesn't mean that your knowledge is more valid than those other people. And that's partly the kind of condescension that I hear when he says, oh, I'm going to treat you with respect by explaining why you're wrong. That's completely condescending. So just because you're telling me you're not being condescending doesn't mean you're actually not being condescending. And I think if he's writing for the Chronicle of Education, Higher Education, I also think he's completely tone deaf to who his audience is. Like his audience is going to be really smart and really savvy and will be able to do the explication of his words. And what he's saying is really condescending. (laughs) Yeah, so I yeah, and wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah, so that I mean that's just interesting. And I also appreciate you kind of explaining giving a kind of brief explanation of intersectionality because I think that's a word that just gets like tossed about yeah. here and there nowadays and it's almost lost meaning unfortunately. Kind of like the way diversity is kind of yeah. and this is something we we've talked about before. If you don't mind mentioning just quickly like how do you see the difference between the way that term is being thrown around, say, in businesses that promote diversity or even the university here that claims to, um, you know, be advocates for diversity and inclusion, diversity versus equity. And and that is another term that it's kind of being more, um, I see, I hear more and more often as a, a substitute for diversity. Yeah, I mean, my own preference is to talk about equity and inclusivity instead of talking about diversity. So I have a lot of different thoughts about this. I mean, number one, I think that talking about diversity is not bad in and of itself. That Mm -hmm. in in some ways, it's the phrase that if I use the term diversity, then I know what people think I'm talking about. And so I will use it from time to time. And I definitely think not talking about diversity is not a good thing. So if you're in a business or classroom setting in which you're not going to talk about diversity or someone actually even says like 
I don't think we should talk about diversity. Yeah. That's, that seems to me a big red flag. And <laughs> so in that way, like, I'd rather people say, yes, we, we want to talk about diversity. The problem with just leaving it at diversity is the word has become such a catch-all for such a variety of differences. So I think that diversity writ large essentially just means that we want to have different points of views or acknowledge different types of experiences, which again is not a bad thing. But what that means is we could decide that we want geographic diversity. So let's take the IH as one example. We could say like, oh, we want to make sure that we hire people who, you know, grew up in the Midwest as well as the West Coast. Or even if we're hiring all Southerners, like we want yeah. a Floridian and a Georgian and an Alabamian. And that's or type of regional diversity, but that's not really getting at issues of equity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think, the fear that when people use the phrase diversity, it feels like it's not getting at power. And I think, whereas I think for me, equity and inclusion tries to get at power differentials and the ways that we should recognize how power is operating and systemic inequities. Mm-hmm. So. I think diversity oftentimes is a substitute for talking about race or racism. And if we're going to talk about really addressing race and racism, then we should just simply say that because that's a different issue than talking about recognizing access in terms of, can you make sure that um, people who are vision impaired have access to signage? or who are physically impaired, that there are elevators in buildings, which by the way, at UNC Chapel Hill, there are still buildings without elevators. So we're not great in that element of diversity. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, I want to shift a little bit to uh, before, I believe it was, it's kind of funny because so much has happened in just the past few days um, on campus at the end of the semester. But going back to the Chronicle of Higher Ed, there was an article, and it was kind of spurred on by your letter that you wrote to the dean of the college. Well, that I I was one of, I I should say. Oh, yeah, sure. No, no, just because that that really was a group effort. And so I wouldn't, you know, the... Yeah, could you talk a little bit about that later, uh, that letter? Yeah, yeah. So I contacted other members that first part of the article is true I was sort of just sitting around and feeling helpless like what can I do I'm an individual faculty member although I am a full professor and so that should mean that I should have some power (laughs) at my fingertips Mm -hmm. to you know be heard right and then I remembered that I'm part of Dean Guskowitz's faculty advisory committee on diversity so I contacted the other members and I quickly drafted a letter And I said, I welcome feedback, I welcome edits, um, but here's a letter that I'm going to send to Dean Guskowitz. People are free to sign on or not. Um, And not everyone did. So um, there were seven of eight of us who agreed to sign on. And the person who didn't wrote to me privately, and and that's confidential, and I totally respect that. So several people weighed in, made edits and comments. So it was really a joint effort. The letter was really a joint Mm -hmm. effort. And... Um, I emailed it to Dean Guskowitz, and then I posted it on Twitter. Because one of the things that we agreed on was that we wanted to make this public. We wanted to show the UNC community that there were a group of faculty who did have this advisory capacity, who were charged, in fact, with being advisors to Dean Guskowitz on issues of diversity. And so we felt like this was within our mission. This was within our charge. Mm -hmm. And that this was an issue that we wanted to show our expertise because I think we were 
invited to be part of this committee because we do have expertise on a variety of diversity issues related to campus. And then the Chronicle of Higher Ed found my Twitter. And so, you know, for those of you not using social media, um, Twitter can be a very powerful tool to get people's attention. Yeah. And I was interviewed by the reporter about the impetus for the letter, as well as my thoughts as a faculty member around um, the temporary withholding of grades that TA instructors were doing, as well as the general campus climate, and my own opinions just as a faculty member at UNC Chapel Hill. Yeah, and one thing I I would like to ask you about, but near the end of that article, they have you quoted saying, you're kind of talking about the atmosphere at Chapel Hill, and you, you're quoted saying it's kind of discouraging, but then you go on to say, I don't think it would take much to have a good will asserted and for people to feel united. We're looking for leadership to say, here's what's right and here's what's wrong. And then you also say it wouldn't take moving mountains to get people to feel proud again. What what would you like to see that would adds that, that uh, effort of goodwill that you referred to in the article? I would like to see senior administrators at UNC Chapel Hill talk in really specific, accurate terms about what this issue is really about. And what the issue is really about is a statue that represents white supremacy and a current campus climate that feels embattled by outside forces who are coming in who have a white supremacist, white national agenda. And the exhaustion, particularly by the people of color here at UNC. And by people, I, I really feel like the staff have been completely left out of this discussion. So we sometimes will talk about faculty responses. We definitely concentrate on students. We ignore the fact that there is a sizable population of black staff and staff of color. Like the nighttime staff at um, UNC that does the housekeeping, half of them are Burmese. Mm-hmm. And most of them are refugees. So that gets ignored, the fact that there are staff who have to live with the consequences of that statue and who have been living with the consequences of being in a right-to-work space and Mm -hmm. not feeling like they have the freedom and the liberty to speak up because their livelihood is imperiled. And that makes it all the more incumbent on faculty and students who feel like they can have a voice in this issue to talk about what's right and wrong. And what's right and wrong in the 21st century is it is wrong for anyone on campus to feel like their immutable identity, and in this case I mean race specifically, is being attacked or has been attacked when you have an institution that has never truly, I think, reckoned with the legacy of slavery and anti-black racism. I think UNC has tried to do many admirable things, truly. Mm -hmm. And I think that I initially poo-pooed Chancellor Fult apologizing for slavery because I felt like it was too little too late. And then I had a conversation with a fellow faculty member who's African-American and whose parents live here in North Carolina. And he told me how meaningful that was for his Mm. parents that Chancellor Fult apologized for slavery, that that was a huge moment for them to see the chancellor of the flagship school of the state of North Carolina apologize for slavery. And it really made me realize that I sit with my PhD in this ivory tower and I'm really disconnected from people in North Carolina. And that's 
that's on me, right? That's mm-hmm. like, that's something that I need to really rectify and kind of think through. And But it also made me realize that there's a lot that that Chancellor Fult and others at UNC could do in terms of making public statements that would create a lot of goodwill for not just our campus community, but the larger community in the state of North Carolina that really looks to UNC to be a leader on so many issues. Well, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.